Well, good evening. It's good to see all of you here tonight. Thank you for being here. I just want you to know how much I enjoy worshiping with you and hearing your voices. Um, there is something, like Andy said, special about gathering together with God's people and just listening and hearing um, each other's voices as we proclaim um, God's goodness. It's a good thing, too, because God just likes a joyful noise. So even though not all of us have the most joyful noises... <laughs> It is still good. So here's what I want to do tonight. Tonight I'm going to finish where I left off last week. Last week I I addressed a particular problem that you and I face. It's a unique problem and it's a problem that most of us are probably unaware of. At least I was at this point. Um, But this problem surfaced about a month ago with a recent survey that was published by the Barna Group. If you're familiar with the Barna Group, the Barna Group is a group of um, people who get together and they research and they, they do surveys and they're the probably most extensive group of people who do anything like this in their market. And so Barna published this article and in this article what we found was that Barna said that there is a, the, he, they gave a list of a hundred most post-Christian cities in the North, in North America. So this list illustrated for us a, a, the top hundred post-Christian cities in the United States. And like I said last week, I have no idea how many cities are in the United States, but I can imagine that there's a lot. I can imagine that there's a whole lot. And so as I read, I, I wasn't shocked at the fact that I saw that most of the top of this list was dominated by the Northeast and Northwest. So cities like New York City, Boston, um, cities all throughout Maine, all dominated the list, Washington, D.C. But as I got down to about the middle of the list, I was shocked to find out that Temple, Texas made the list. I was shocked to find that Temple, Texas not only made the list, but they were actually number 51 on that list. And I think it's helpful for us to be reminded that they actually clumped Waco, Temple, and Bryan, Texas all into one to create a, a greater greater majority of population. But I think it's um, evident through this that, that we have a problem, a problem that exists that we no longer are the Bible Belt and so what once used to be known as the buckle to the Bible belt is, is no longer such. Um, and so we, again, have a problem. And so let me do real quick some groundwork here and define what it means to be post-Christian. According to Barna, to qualify as post-Christian, individuals must meet nine or more of our 16 criteria, which identify a lack of Christian identity, belief, and practice. These factors include whether individuals identify as atheist, have never made a commitment to Jesus, and have not attended church in the last year, or have not read their Bible in the last week. And so the way that I think about this, when I think of what it means to be post-Christian, I look at it this way. In our particular area, Christianity is a foregone conclusion. It's a foregone conclusion. What I mean by that is this. It is something that they have tried. It's something that they have grown up with, maybe even experienced to a certain degree. And for whatever reason, it just hasn't worked for them. And so maybe they grew up in church. Um, you know, on that list, just after our name is Portland, Oregon. You know, and I was talking to some friends this week about that. And they said, well, my kids live in Portland. There's no way that we're behind them or that we're in front of them. And I said, I don't know that it's as evident 
that we would be ahead of them, but I think we have a problem in that what much of our Christianity is covered over this blanket of Christianity, of this, what I would call cultural Christianity, where I grew up in church and so I must be a Christian. But the, the amount of people who actually know Christ and actually know Him in experience and knowledge, I think is, is a very small minority, and I think that's what we're seeing here today. If you were to talk to Matthew Levon after he did extensive research on where to plant his church, Renewal Church, um, his his research showed that only 8% of Bell County is actively involved in a church on Sunday morning. Only 8%. And again, I think that just speaks to the truth that we no longer live in what we used to know as the Bible Belt, as the buckle of the Bible Belt, but rather we have lost our Christianity. We It is a foregone conclusion It is nothing more than another self-help philosophy that has made very little impact in the lives of family members, friends, or within themselves. And so there is no longer a need for it. There is no longer a need for it. At least the Christianity that they have observed. And so my encouragement to you, and I I hope this is encouraging. I know that this can strike you as discouraging, and quite frankly, it was discouraging for me early on. But the more that I thought about it, the more that I realized, I don't know that this is discouraging news. I think it actually might be encouraging news. Because see, now we have a platform for how we ought to live. See, the floodgates have now been opened for how you and I ought to operate in the world. We can no longer just rely on cultural Christianity. We can no longer rely on people just coming and flocking into the church. See, not long ago, many mission strategies for the church were, well, we'll just create all these programs. We'll have the best youth ministry. We'll have the best children's ministry. We'll create all of this stuff. And by creating this stuff, parents will want to bring their kids. And so they'll come, they'll hear the gospel, and they'll believe. But the problem that we face now in this post-Christian society is that people aren't flocking to the church anymore. People aren't flocking to the church anymore. As a matter of fact, I gave two examples last week of how I've seen this play out in my life where I've talked to people in my own neighborhood who have said, I don't even know where First Baptist Belton is. It's like, have you driven down Bain Street? (laughs) Have you exited Fifth Avenue down and, and headed down Fifth Avenue towards town? Sixth Avenue, sorry, my wife's correcting me, thank you. That's good, thanks babe keeps me accountable. But have you driven down 6th Avenue? How do you not know where 1st Baptist Belton is? And I think that's true of where we stand is that we no longer can expect people to flock to the church, but rather we have to expect as ministers and as people of God that we now are the programs. We have to become the irresistible people that God has intended for us to always be. See, if you study the book, or if you study the Old Testament, you'll find that God's great purpose for Israel was to be a light to the nations. The only problem with Israel being a light to the nations is, more often than not, they looked too much like the nation to be a light for the nation. They lost their irresistibility, if you will. And so what I'm calling us to tonight, and what I called us to last week, is challenging us with, we've got to get back to what makes us irresistible. We've got to be an irresistible people once again. And I gave, I gave you last week, I gave you two particular ways in which we can do that. And I'm going to elaborate and I'm going to give you three more tonight. The first one that I gave you last week was worship. 
It's worship. I reminded us that mission begins not with action, but with belief. What compels our mission efforts is the worship of the risen Jesus. I'm reminded of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Um, And if you go just two verses before verse 18, you will find that as the disciples were told to go to the Sea of Galilee, they followed the instruction of Jesus and they were standing there waiting for Jesus to come. And so Jesus comes, the risen Christ comes to meet them. And the text is beautiful because what it says is when they saw him, they worshiped him. When they saw the risen Jesus, they didn't ask him any questions. They didn't say, hey, where have you been? Hey, how did we miss it? They didn't ask any of those questions. They just simply worshiped him for the risen Jesus that he is. And then shortly right after that, Jesus gives them the great commission. The same great commission that in Acts chapter 19 would say that it changed the world. And so what I believe is that if we want to be a missional people and if we want to reach our county, if we want to reach our city, if we want to be people that are for the city, then it is going to begin with our worship of the risen Jesus, to see him rightly as he is. The second thing was authenticity. We have to become a real people with real struggles who look to a real king who has the power to transcend and transform any and all brokenness. See, I don't know if you're like me, but growing up, Much of my Christianity was clothed in the Sunday's best kind of mentality. And I don't mean clothing. I mean, when we got to the church, it was, hey, you guys, get it together. Because at church, we have to have it all together. And see, the problem with that is, is that we have created in these walls a facade that says, I've got to have it all together in church. That when I'm around these people, I have to have it all together. But the problem is, is that takes out the gospel and it takes out the power of God to transcend the brokenness. And so we have people who come in here and they recognize and they realize that, man, I'm just being judged. I'm, I, I'm not being loved or accepted for who I am. And there's no place for them to be broken. There's no place for them to suffer. There's no place for them to experience the healing power of the gospel because we all have it figured out. And so we have to become a people who don't have it figured out, who are broken and recognize that it's okay to be broken. It's okay to suffer because it's in our suffering. It's in our weakness that Christ is made great. It's in our suffering and it's in our limping, if you will, where Christ begins to walk for us. And I believe that that is where we find our irresistibility. And so thirdly, and First on the list tonight is to engage this post-Christian society. We must decompartmentalize our lives. Maybe you're like me and you've spent the majority of your life filling your different buckets with all the different things in which you do. So whether it's church in one bucket, school in one bucket, if you're in school, work in another bucket, family in another bucket. And so we build our lives around all these different buckets But the problem is, is that the one bucket that should fill them all is set over here and we only give them one to three hours a week. And so how do we have any hope in that one to three hours that we spend with Jesus to transform the rest of our daily lives? We have to be a people who pour the worship of Christ, where his, the worship of him overflows into every bucket that we have. And see, most of us here tonight, and I, I, you're probably like me in this way too, that 
when Jesus is not flowing through every bucket that I have, they run dry because there's a hole in them. And the only hole that can fill that bucket is Christ. The only hole that can satisfy that deep longing is Christ. And so this problem with this compartmentalizing our lives is that the Bible really doesn't have a category for that. The Bible doesn't have a category for how we compartmentalize our lives on all these different facets of our life. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17, Paul says this, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So if you've said yes to Jesus, if you have taken that step of faith and said, yes, I want to trust Jesus, I want to give you my life, Jesus, then you have begin, you have become one with him. And it's interesting that Paul uses marriage language to describe this, but I think it's helpful because if you were in Christ, what he's saying here is that you are married to him. You were married to Christ. And just like in marriage on June 9th, 2012, when I married my bride, there was no turning back. I said, yes, I want to, I want to marry you. And so no matter whether I go to work, no matter if I'm home, no matter if I'm at school, no matter if I'm at extracurricular activities, I am joined to my wife. That never changes. And so what Paul, I believe, is encouraging us here tonight is understanding that you have been made one with him. And that never changes. No matter how many buckets that you create, you have been made one with Christ. And so you ought to transform every nook and cranny of our souls and our hearts that we may have our eyes fixed on him and that everything that we do, everything that we have and everything that we are would be fueled by your love and devotion to him. And when that's true, you cannot compartmentalize your life. And so whether you're at work, how do I serve Christ? Whether I'm at home, how do I serve Christ? When I'm at school or when I'm at the baseball field or if I'm at the basketball arena or wherever it is that you do life, how then do I serve Christ? How then do I live irresistibly in a world full of darkness? How do I become a light to the nations, a light to a county that is post-Christian that says that they don't have any need for Christ? Paul continues in verse 19 and he says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You who have, who have come from God, or you have from God, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. And he says, so glorify God in your body. What a daunting text. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the Old Testament, the temple in the Old Testament? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? For me, the temple existed for man to worship and to interact with God's presence. It's where God's presence dwelled. And where God's presence dwelled is where you and I have an opportunity to go and to interact with the living God. And for us... To be the temple of God, we must understand that we are God's tool that he uses to interact with the world. Which means not a moment is wasted. Not a moment, not a minute, not a second of your life is wasted, but it is purposeful. 
that God has divinely orchestrated it for his glory and the good of all the people around, including yourself. See, when people interact with us, they ought to get a taste of heaven. I want you to think about that. So when people greet you at the grocery store, they ought to get a small glimpse of what heaven's like. When you interact with your neighbors, they ought to get a small glimpse of what it looks like to interact with the living God. When you're at practice with your kiddos or your grandkids and you're chatting with the other parents, they ought to get a glimpse of what it looks like to love the living God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, not a minute, not a moment is wasted when only 8% of our county is plugged into church, not a moment can be wasted. Not a second. So when you're in restaurants, do you stiff your waiter or waitress? Who cares if they have bad service? Your service wasn't so good to Jesus, and yet he gave his life for you. See, you see how the gospel transforms every nook and cranny of our life. So no matter where we go, we are a people who extend grace and God's goodness to all that we interact with because we are the temple of the living God, the place where God's presence dwells and lives and interacts with the world. That's what it means to be a light to the nations. And what good is a light if it's filled with darkness? What good is a light if it doesn't point to the hope of the world? No matter where we are, no matter who we interact with, we ought to be the hope of the world because we are the hope of the world. See, whether you do or they, whether you do or whether you don't, it doesn't change because God's presence never leaves. His presence never leaves. It always stays. Number four, to engage this post-Christian culture, we must practice biblical hospitality. Biblical hospitality. We live in a culture that is increasingly individualistic. Our homes are our place for refuge from the world and a temple of relaxation. We are faced with the constant temptation to be entertained and we are dominated by busyness that prevents us from experiencing true rest. And so what I mean by biblical hospitality is not your traditional view of hospitality that has to do with food and drink and those different things. Those are all good things and they're a part of being hospitable. But what I mean by hospitable is being a good steward of all that you have and all that you are. That you're using your home as leverage for the gospel, as leverage for the advancement of the kingdom. Because the 8%, or rather the 92% of those who are not plugged into churches live next door to you. They live in your neighborhoods. They go to work with you. Everywhere you are, so do they. They dwell in the same places you do. And so we must adopt a posture where we use our places of refuge as a light for the nations. Where we welcome them into our homes just like Christ welcomed us into the family of God. And so we must become a welcoming people. No matter where we are or where we go, we must be identified as a welcoming people. After reminding the Ephesians that at one time they were strangers and alienated from the promises of God and cut off from Christ. Remember, as Gentiles, you and I were cut off from the promises of God with no hope in the world, Paul says. Paul says, 
He writes in Ephesians 2, verses 17 and 19, he says, And he, being Jesus, came and he preached peace to you who were far off, and even peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And I really want you to, I don't miss this. You're fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God. I love the book of Ephesians because the book of Ephesians reminds me that at one point I was a child of wrath. At what point, one point I had no hope. At one point I was a hater of the God that I love so much. And yet he met me where I am, where, where I was, and meets me where I am and meets you where you are. And he says, welcome home. It's the story of the prodigal son. No matter which end of the spectrum that you land on, God welcomes you home. Whether you're the prideful elder brother or whether you're the rebellious son, God says, I make no, I make no judgment, but I welcome you home into my home and I clothe you with my righteousness. If God has clothed us in our righteousness without anything that we did in order to deserve it, then how can we not open our door and say, please come, come experience, come taste a little bit of heaven. Come taste a little bit of Christ. Come taste a little bit of grace in this world that has no form or fashion of grace and certainly no idea of what that looks like. Of mercy, of true love, not the love that the culture has bought, not that lie, but actual real love that comes from the God who is love. See, that's what we're welcoming them, that's what we're welcoming them, welcoming them into. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. See, I have found that many people will enter your home that will not enter the church. A lot of people have a lot of beef with the church. But you know what they don't have a lot of contention with? Your home. Because they know that that's your place of refuge. They know that's your place of safety and comfort And so invite them, welcome them in. To be irresistible means that we are a welcoming people. In the late 1990s, there's a lady, her name is Rosaria Butterfield. Maybe some of you have heard of her. She wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Incredible book on biblical hospitality. Her story is amazing. She was a professor of liberal arts and English at Syracuse University. She was a a feminist. She led many feminist movements um, she uh, led the homosexual um, agenda for the university and as a matter of fact was married to a, another woman for several years. I want to say 20 years, I think. She had a dog who loved the dog. They both loved the dog. And then there was one day where she got an assignment to research and study and to write on the religious right, as she called it, ultimately conservative Christianity. Knowing that she's a hater of Christianity, God knew better. And so God began to woo her, even though she didn't know it. God will get you. God will get you. And so one day she met a pastor, a pastor of a small Presbyterian church who valued hospitality. And he met Rosaria and through a few interactions started welcoming her into her, into his home. And so she began to eat dinner and have dinner with him and his wife. And over time, through him sharing the gospel kindly and gently and lovingly, this woman who hated Christianity, who hated you and I in this room and everything that we stand for, became a Christian. 
Now Rosaria is a renowned traveler and author, and she's now actually married to a pastor in South Carolina. It's kind of ironic how God works all things out. And her thesis in her book is that God uses ordinary ways of hospitality to reach those who are the most vulnerable, broken, and who desperately need the gospel. See, this world believes that they don't need the gospel, but the problem is, is that they have missed it. They have missed what is the true gospel. And they've distorted it with what we call cultural Christianity, where there's no cost, right? Just come to church, but I'm never changed. What Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls um, cheap grace. And what she argues for is that we need to be a people who uphold grace, And who welcome the broken, the downtrodden, those who have been mended and those who have no hope. And we welcome them into our homes with ordinary ways of hospitality. Some practical ways of doing this that I have found to be helpful that I'm trying to do in my life. Instead of grilling on my back porch, I try to grill in the front yard. I just try to be available. When everybody in my neighborhood pulls into their driveway and literally runs into their garage and shuts the door behind them, I try to leave my garage door open saying, hey, we're home. We're here if you need us. We go on walks to get to know people. And that's not all that easy for me. People believe that I'm an extrovert and I am extroverted in a lot of ways, but I'm not when I go home. I'm not. So it's not easy for me to get out and want to knock on people's doors. That's not, I don't want to, I don't want to bother people. And so we get out and we're just available. We're just trying to be available. Well, you know why? Because nobody else is. Nobody else in our neighborhood is ever out. But you know what? The other day I ran into one of our neighbors and we got to talking and he asked me, of course, what I do. And I told him, I was like, man, I, I serve at a church as a minister at First Baptist Belton. And he began to weep. He was a combat veteran. And he said, it's because of you that I have hope. It's because of you that I have hope. And I asked him, well, I don't understand that. Why, why is that? And he said, because it's people like you who help people like me see that there's still, there's, there's still love in the world. There's still something to live for. And yes, I'm a minister, but so are you. See, God has called us all to be ministers. If you're in Christ, then you are a minister. You have been reconciled to him and you are now an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And as such, We live and we move and we breathe as people who love Jesus, who point people to a real Jesus, who is real and active and alive, the risen Jesus, the same Jesus that the disciples worshiped, we too worship. And so we begin to invite people to get to know them. Listen, all I'm asking and all I'm trying to do in my own life is just get to know people. In a world of social media where we lose human interaction, seek to get to know somebody. Seek to get to know their soul and what they, what makes them tick. People love to talk about themselves. Invite them over and just ask them about them. Believe me, you'll be there for a while. But you know what else? You'll gain a whole lot of insight into what they need in their life and how Jesus fits every nook and cranny of it. And lastly, To engage this post-Christian culture, we must pursue unity and diversity. I think out of all the things that I've said, this is probably the most difficult, frustrating, and hard thing that I have ever tried to do or I will ever ask you to do. 
You know, for me, it's easy to live in the black and white. It's hard to live in a gray area. I'm uncomfortable in the gray area. But you know, I had breakfast with a group of pastors in the area this last week, two of which, which I, I completely disagree theologically in, in more ways than I can ever imagine. But I was challenged in that conversation. I was challenged because I felt like God was just reminding me, but who are they? What are they about? And so I began to ask questions. I said, hey, help me understand your position. Like we, we disagree that's on the table, but help me understand you. Help me understand your position. And although we disagree firmly in a lot of things that I think I hold really dear, I realized that we had a lot more in common than we do different. I realized that we had a lot more in common than we do than we share in differences. See, I realized that these guys actually do love Jesus as much as I love Jesus. And what I realized that in that conversation, that is if we have any hope, then we are going to have, if we're going to have any hope in reaching this area, then we are going to have to unite arms with people that we don't always agree with. We're going to have to unite with people who don't look like us, act like us, think like us, and even believe exactly the way that we believe. Because Jesus is better. Because Jesus is more important and his kingdom is of greater value than our preferences. His kingdom is of greater of, of greater value than our preferences. The kingdom of God is incredibly diverse, and we must understand and accept that the kingdom is made up of all ethnicities and nationalities from all different backgrounds, both political platforms, various denominations, rich, poor, broken, and mended, and yet God calls us all to be one. He calls us all to be one. In John 17 most widely known as the high priestly prayer, Jesus offers this sentiment in verse 20 and verses 20 and 23 through 23. He says, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the disciples that are there, the, the original disciples. He says, I do not ask for these only, but I ask for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, Get this, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I also give them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. See, what weighs in the balance of our unity as the church is that our unity brings credibility to the gospel. Why would anybody believe a gospel of a bunch of people who can't agree on anything? Why would people be interested or drawn to a people who can't set a few differences aside for the one thing that matters, and that's Christ? Our culture is filled with hate. I think we can all probably agree on that. But I've, ex- I've seen it exist within the church. I grew up in a church where my grandma would call our pastor the devil all because they wanted to change the worship style. Where they, 
threatened to not come to our wedding because we were going to get we were going to meet in a church that has contemporary worship. How is that irresistible? All for worship. When we sing the same things, we're singing of the same Jesus. It means that Methodists and Baptists need to put their differences aside and share their commonalities in Christ. We've got to pursue our oneness, guys. We've got to pursue our oneness. It means that no matter what race or nationality that we are, we put our differences aside and we celebrate the commonality that we share in Christ. You know, it's funny. I, growing up, I, I was probably a little more sensitive kid and that when I would walk into a room, there was something unique that I would always notice. I would always notice that the black folks were always in one corner. The Hispanics were in one. The white people were over here. Popular kids were over here. And then all the strange kids were kind of over here. That was in first grade. I'll never forget that. And I thought, why is it that we always gravitate to people who look like us, act like us, and think like us? And then we can't tolerate in any way, shape, or form people who don't. And so here's what I want you to know, and I I don't want you to take what I'm saying as this. I am not saying that we sacrifice right doctrine. You'll never hear me say that. We will uphold the truth of the Bible always. But guys, there are people who are Christians who represent the Republican Party and there are people who represent, who are Christians who represent the Democratic Party. We have to get that and understand that and be okay with that. There are black people who love the Lord as much as you and I do. And there are Hispanics And there are people who are diverse backgrounds who need our help, who need the hope that you and I have. And so we must, I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you to lay down our preferences because we believe that the risen Jesus is better. That the risen Jesus that you and I serve is worthy of all of their worship. I think Piper got it right. John Piper got it right when he said, that everything that we are and everything we do is fueled by worship. Mission begins with worship. That if we don't worship the risen Jesus, we have no shot. That if our minds are not focused on Jesus, we have no hope. And there's far too many Christians living in this world with little to no hope. That are bitter and frustrated and angry and quite frankly look no different than the culture Jesus said that it is our oneness that brings credibility to the truth of the gospel. And so therefore, I think it's safe to say that our disunity discredits the truth of the gospel to the world. So I think that's what's beautiful about Revelation chapter 7, that one day you and I will stand in eternity with people who don't look like us, speak the same language, act the same that we do, come from the same backgrounds, and we will all be worshiping for eternity. That gets me pretty excited. That stretches me. That pushes me. And I have no concept of what it looks like to pursue this oneness. 
I have no idea of how to do this. I'm just simply going to try because I think that Jesus is asking us to try. And so I'm asking you to try. Will you try? Will we try? As a family, will we say, you know what? We're going to do this thing together. We don't have to be rogue agents. We don't have to do this. We don't have to be individuals in this individualistic society, but rather we can do this as a family of God who says, you know what? We're going to do this and we're going to reach these people because God is still alive and God is still active and he is not sitting on his hands going, well, I guess that's it. He's just not done. He promises that he's not done. And so like Andy said this morning, let's pray. Let's lean in on the power of prayer. Let's plead with God to help us when we don't understand. And yet step into the spaces when he creates opportunities for us to have conversations, for us to get to know people, and for us to extend the love of Christ to those who do not know it. Let me pray for us. God, your word... As much as I love it, it hurts sometimes and it challenges me, it challenges us and it pushes us. And uh, God, I pray that that would be true tonight, Lord, that it would push us and it would challenge us to be an irresistible people. God, I look at the history of the church and I see all throughout the book of Acts, God, that the people of God were irresistible. There was something about them. There was just something about them, God, that allowed people to just get a taste of what heaven was like. Oh, Lord, may we be that way. May we live a Revelation 7 type life where people go, I just don't understand what, what is the deal with those people? How can they love people that they cannot get along with at all? That they so staunchly disagree with? How can we welcome the Rosaria Butterfields into our home knowing that Jesus is better and that his kingdom is more important than what we think of them. And Lord, help us to extend grace to a world that needs it and mercy to a world that has no concept of it. Father, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you're in this room and that maybe you two find yourself in a place where you don't know Jesus. You don't know that risen Jesus that when Jesus tells you to meet him on the Sea of Galilee and you find yourself sitting there and you're just like, man, I just don't know. I just don't, I just don't know. I don't know that. I know a lot about Jesus. I know all the facts. I know everything that there is to know about him, but I, I might not know him in both knowledge and experience. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to come to know Jesus and experience. So I invite you to come. Come tonight.